Today is the last Sunday that we'll be spending some time in this particular sermon series on justice. But I'm hoping that we will not view this as an end so much as a starting point, a jumping off point of what it means for us as a people of God to live into God's idea of justice. Because really, we have only even barely begun to scratch the surface of what God's sense of justice is all about. It is such a big and complex issue that we could spend a lot more time on it. And in the days ahead, months ahead, years ahead, I trust that we will. I hope that you are aware by now that throughout this particular sermon series, we've been using Micah chapter 6, verse 8 as a theme verse for ourselves. And we do that because on each sermon series, we do our best to focus on one or two verses that are a reminder of what the series is about, but also just to work on memorizing it so that we are literally sowing God's words of life into our own heart. And so what I want to ask you to do this morning is I want to ask you to join with me, say the words out loud of Micah chapter 6, verse 8. And don't be afraid, just literally put them out there and we're going to say it with one voice together. So would you join me? Let's go ahead and share. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God? Now, I heard you, but I know that you can do even a little bit better than that. So now that you're warmed up, I want you to put a little more effort into it, put a little gusto into it with me, and let's say it again as with one voice, but just say a little bit more powerfully. Here we go. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. Now, you did better. I could definitely tell an increase, but I know that there could be even more in there. So, I mean, I literally want you to feel like you can yell it out, okay? So join me and just say it super loud. I want to hear you as loud as you can. Here we go one more time. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. That is definitely a little bit better. I appreciate that. When it comes to God's word, God's word is filled with life. And I hope that we will engage it that way, not just by saying it out loud or proclaiming it, but in our own lives as we sow it into our own hearts. Because that's really what we want to be happening, is God's word to be being sown into our hearts. And so a little bit later on, if you don't have it yet, I invite you to go ahead and grab your Bible, uh, either on your phone or in person or wherever, or one in front of you, whatever it might be, because we're going to be, again, diving into God's Word and exploring what God has in store for us there. We are told in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, to do justice. Now, it's one thing to say, do justice, but it is another thing entirely to actually go and do it, to go and to live it out. And so rather than trying to explain in long detail about what it means for us to live out God's sense of justice, I thought it might be easier to lift up a couple of examples of a couple of different people who are living out justice. And then we can look to their example to encourage us in our own lives. So here's the first one I want us to hear. I want to hear about Heather. Heather graduated from, of all places, Harvard Law School. She landed a lucrative job with a major law firm in Manhattan. It was a dream come true job for any aspiring young professional. She was a high-powered corporate lawyer. She was living the life in the big city. And yet for her, it was still all strangely unsatisfying. She wanted to make a difference in people's lives, and she was concerned about those who in society could not afford the kind of fees that her clients paid her firm. So eventually, for a fraction of her former salary, she became an assistant district attorney for New York County, where so many of the criminals that she now prosecutes are those who have been exploiting the poor, especially poor women. 
She is now using her life, her power, her influence to offer liberty and life and dignity for those who otherwise would not have it. She is living out justice. I want to tell you about Mark. Mark had been a seminary student. He was bright, young, articulate. Literally, he'd go anywhere he wanted. The future was truly his. But one day he approached one of his seminary professors and he said to his professor, I would like to move into Sandtown. Now, Sandtown was one of the poorest, most dangerous neighborhoods in all of Baltimore. And the professor was rather surprised by Mark's decision. So he finally said to him, Mark, why are you doing this? And Mark looked at his professor and said, because I want to do justice. Now, it had been decades since anybody had chosen to move into Sandtown. Mark shared that it was really touch and go the first couple of years that he tried to work his way into that community, into that neighborhood. He shared with a reporter that the police thought he was a drug dealer, and the drug dealer thought he was the police. So for a while, he said he did not know who was going to shoot him first. But over the years, Mark and others in that community, they eventually established a church and actually a comprehensive set of ministries that have slowly transformed that neighborhood. Mark decided to use his power, his life, to offer life and liberty and dignity for those who otherwise would not have it. He is living out justice. Now, both Mark and Heather, they were living comfortable, safe, easy lives, relatively speaking. But they became concerned about the poor, the most vulnerable, and the marginalized members of society. And they made long-term personal sacrifices in order to meet the needs and interests of those who are hurting in this world. And I think they're pretty amazing people, just hearing some of their story. I want to introduce you, though, to one other person here this morning who also lived a life of justice. And his name, maybe you've heard this name before, his name is Job. In fact, I would venture to guess most of you have heard of Job at some point in your life. If you are familiar with Job at all, you've probably heard him related in the context of suffering. And that's right. Because if you read through Job's story in the Bible, you'll see that he was one of those guys, he did absolutely everything right. He didn't do anything wrong, and still he suffered. Job followed God with all of his heart. He worked hard. He lived right. He lived justly. Again, he did everything right, and still life came along and absolutely punched him in the gut. He lost his home. He lost his fortune. He lost all his sons. He lost all his daughters. He lost almost everything, and still he didn't do a darn thing wrong. So how in the world is that fair? How in the world is that a sense of justice? And one of the really fascinating points about Job's story is that his supposed friends in his time of need, they came to him, they didn't comfort him, they didn't support him, they came and they condemned him. They said, Job, you must have done something wrong. Why don't you just fess up to it and own it and tell us what you actually did? Job's like, I didn't do anything wrong. But again, instead of comforting him, they came and accused him. One of my favorite passages in Job has this guy named Eliaphaz, who is one of Job's friends. He comes to Job and he says this, Should the wise answer with windy knowledge and fill themselves with the east wind? And basically what he's saying to Job is, Job, you're full of it. As in hot air, you're just a windy bag or you wouldn't be suffering the way you are. So yes, Job is about dealing with suffering, and that's again usually what we talk about with Job, but Job is also one of the most important texts in all of the Bible that gives us the example for living out justice. So I want to invite you to grab your Bibles, and we're going to turn to Job chapter 29, verses 12 to 17, and we hear these words about Job. 
And again, I'm hoping that God's word as we do this will just be sown into our hearts. If you don't know where Job is, it's in the Old Testament. Right in the middle of the Old Testament is a big book called the Psalms. Job is right before the Psalms. And we hear these words in Job 29. It says, and this is Job speaking, I rescued the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to assist him. The man who was dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sing. I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the immigrant. I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. I want you to make sure. Did you hear the last verse that I read there? I broke the fangs of the wicked and I snatched the victims from their teeth. I mean, think about that a moment. That is a pretty powerful, vivid image. Who says that the Bible is boring or that it's bland? I mean, just I picture myself in being really frustrated with somebody and walking up to somebody and, and just being like, hey, buddy, don't you make me break your wicked fangs. I mean, this is like this intense kind of encounter here. What is going on? What is this strong emotion being conveyed? What's it all about? I will tell you what it's all about. It's about justice. Job is living out justice in his life. He is confronting people who have exploited the vulnerable, the fatherless, the immigrants, the needy, and he is upset about it because he cares. These are people, these hurting people that Job has a relationship with. He knows them and he cannot bear to watch them suffer and to see these blind people hurting and these lame people hurting. And then he looks at the people helping to cause these things and he looks at them and he's so angry. He's ticked about it. He's passionate that he can't just sit back because he knows these people. And he's not going to let, to the best of his ability, these other people keep hurting the vulnerable and the needy among him. So notice that part of what justice is about is this idea of caring, caring enough to do something. Now, we have to have a strong concern for the poor, but there's even more to the biblical notion of justice than just the idea of showing concern. And Job demonstrates that for us. There is a Hebrew word that can be translated as being just, but usually we translate it as being righteous. And we see it today in Job 29, 14. It says, I put on righteousness as a clothing. Now, the Hebrew word here for righteousness is a word called zedekah and refers to a life of right relationships. And when you do that, it leads to prosperity. So there's a scholar named Alec Moyer, and he defines righteous as those who are right with God, and therefore they are committed to putting right all the other relationships in their life. Now, if I say to you, just you know, being here out of context, what do you associate with the word righteous? Usually we modern church people, or trying to take any relationship with God seriously, when I say the word righteous, usually what we think of is things like our private morality, that means to be righteous, or to be uh, pure in our sexual relationship, that means to be righteous, or, or to be diligent in prayer or deep Bible study, that's what it means to be righteous. And those things, that, that's true. But in the Bible, this word zedekwa, to be righteous, it refers to more than that. It refers to day-to-day -day living in which a person conducts all their relationships with their family, with their friends, everyone in society that they come into contact with, with a sense of generosity and equity and fairness. In other words, it's a person who lives life, they live this zedekwa, they live a life of justice fairly through every relationship in their life so that others can experience life and dignity and life to the full. It will probably not surprise us to discover then that this word for righteousness, it has a connection with the word we looked at a couple of weeks ago, a word called mishpat. 
You might remember mishpat referred to justice as well, but it referred to it more as offering punishment. Like when somebody does something wrong, you punish them and therefore make their injustice better. Here's what I want to ask us to think about for just a moment this morning. I just I want to ask for your thought and consideration on this. Just hang in there with me. What does it mean then in Scripture when we find these words zedekah and mishpat? What, do, what does it mean when they are brought together? Because often the bringing together of these two words in Scripture means something that for us corresponds to two different concepts. And again, just hang with me for just a moment. These two words refer to something called rectifying justice and primary justice. Now, the rectifying justice relates to this idea of mishpat. That is, there's a punishing for wrongdoing and a caring for victims of unjust treatment. So this idea is that when the criminal does something wrong and hurts somebody else, you offer justice by punishing the criminal. But something wrong had to happen for the mishpat or the rectifying justice to occur. And by putting them in jail, hopefully that rectifies the situation. That's why it's a rectifying justice. But there's another side of justice, which is the primary justice. And this would be the Zedekah idea that we're talking about here today. It's a behavior that on the front end of things seeks to live out a life of fairness, generosity, liberty, and goodness. And what happens then is if you have the primary justice happening first, the Zedekah, then you don't need the rectifying justice or the mishpat because there's not an injustice to correct. So uh, those of you that know me, I have two boys, Josh and Zach. Uh, I would love it in my life that they, they enjoy playing the PlayStation. I would love it if they just helped each other when it came to the PlayStation and took turns and wanted to offer it for the other one to play. But you will not be surprised to understand that rarely happens in our household. Usually what happens is one wants it and won't share it with the other, and then they get into an argument and they start fighting. And what do I have to do? I have to step in and offer some form of punishment that will rectify the situation. And so I often will say, Josh, Zach, no more PlayStation for anyone. You, you lose it all. You are punished in this situation. But I would never have to do that if my boys, first of all, offered a primary justice, a Zedekwa justice, which would have been at the beginning of it for them to say, hey, Zach, why don't you take a turn? I can wait for a little while. Josh, why don't you take a turn? I can wait for a little while and work out it from there. And if they live into that justice first, you don't need a punishing form of justice. That's what's being shared here in Scripture with us. It's about this idea that there's this right relationship with God first. And when we live into that right relationship first, it spills out into every other area of our lives. That's what this whole concept is about and one of the things that Job begins to show us. And so what I want us to be thinking about is how do we have that right relationship with God first? And when that's happening, even if we tried to hold it back, it is spilling out into every other relationship in the world. And through that, justice occurs. All of this brings us to Job chapter 29, verse 14. And it's one of those things that said this. It used both of the words in close context, Zedekah and Mishpat. And it said this, I put on righteousness, that is the Zedekah, as my clothing. Justice or Mishpat was my robe and my turban. And then Job says, I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a fatherless to the needy. I took up the case of the immigrant. Here, what Job is doing is giving us an example of what we would call primary justice or righteous living. He's going to proactively be eyes for the blind and feet for the lame and a father to the needy. And when he does that, then other punishment justice doesn't have to occur. So in our world, what would that look like? It would look like taking time proactively to meet the needs of the handicapped or the elderly or the hungry or to proactively meet the needs of the children in our neighborhood, or maybe establishing a nonprofit that helps those who are most in need in our world. 
Or it can mean a group of our families from the more prosperous part of the community choosing to adopt a public school in a more poor part of the community and making generous donations or offering time or working pro bono in order to improve the quality of education in that place. Or maybe some of us even saying, I will literally move myself and my family into that part of town to live out right relationship, zedekah, God's justice for the betterment of our world. Now, as we think about that, I want to invite you, if you would take one more step with me in this. In chapter 31, Job gives us even more details about a life of justice and righteousness. In Job 31.16, we hear this, the desires of the poor. He uses this phrase, the desires of the poor, and then he goes on to tell us what it means to live out or help with the desires of the poor. The word used for desire here, it does not mean meeting the basic needs of food and shelter. It means turning the poor person's life into a life of delight. And I absolutely love that. He says, Job says, if I had not shared my bread, if I had not shared my fleece, it would be a terrible offense against God. Not a little disappointment, a major offense against God. Specifically, he says, those sins would be judged for I would have been unfaithful to God on high. Translation, failing to respond to the poor, failing to live out justice in my relationship with those in need. It's not a minor issue. It means we have been unfaithful to God Almighty. It goes way beyond what we would call a charity case. Anyone can do charity. We see businesses doing it all the time and individuals do it all the time. Anyone can do charity. But Job is not here giving handouts and doing charity. He's become deeply involved in the life of these people, the poor and the handicapped and the hurting. And his goal for these poor folks, it's not charity, but a life of delight so that they can receive their heart's desire. His goal for the widow is not just that her eyes would no longer be weary, but that she could see with all the fullness of what can happen in a life lived with God and when God's fairness and justice and generosity are given and experienced. Job's not at all satisfied with halfway measures for the needy people in his community. He's not content to give them small, perfunctory gifts and assumption that their misery will quickly be wiped away. He is ready and prepared to walk with them and see them so that they can experience life's delight. If you've ever had a chance to be with us on Wednesday nights at first night, I feel like I get to see this idea almost every week, this difference between offering charity to somebody and being in a relationship with them where they can experience delight. If you've ever met Karen, Karen comes every week and she is a caretaker of Curran. Curran is in a wheelchair. You don't have to spend more than two or three minutes with Karen while she's working with Curran to realize she's not there just to take care of him. She's not there just to offer him a sense of charity. She is there because she is in relationship with him so that he might experience life's delight. When she laughs with him and talks with him and interacts with him and you see him just laughing with delight, you realize that's what's happening, a right relationship where he's not just receiving charity, he's receiving delight. And what we see here is that when these two words come together, the zedekah and the mishpat, when they're tied directly together like they are over three dozen times in scripture, the English expression that best conveys this idea is the meaning social justice. So it becomes an interesting exercise to go through scripture then and insert the term social justice where these two terms are in close proximity. 
For example, Psalm 33, 5, it says, The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. That would become the Lord loves social justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. Or Job 37, 23, The Almighty is beyond our reach and exalted in power. In his justice and great righteousness, he does not oppress. That becomes the Almighty is beyond our reach and exalted in power. In his social justice, he does not oppress. Is your head spinning yet? Mine certainly is. So when we ask this question, how then do we do justice? How do we live out justice? What are the results of justice? We can discover a common answer to all of those questions. And the principle that becomes clear and that I want us to gain and understand from Scripture is this, that relationship is the key. More specifically, we can say justice is right relationships. It's about more than having a concern for the poor. It's about getting to know the poor, being in love with them, walking with them, being in relationship. Because when we're in relationship with someone, then we know them. And when we know them, then we can use our God-given power to influence their lives by offering them love and justice and encouragement and generosity and equity so that their life might flourish and they might experience delight. That's why Heather's story is so powerful. That's why Mark's story is so powerful. It's why Karen's story is so powerful. It's why Job's story is so powerful because they're not just trying to offer needs to the poor. They are trying to offer delight to the world's most vulnerable individuals. It's why Job, with such passion, looks on those who are not offering justice and says, I broke the fangs of the wicked and I snatched the victims from their teeth. Why does he feel so strongly? It wasn't again that he felt the charity for the poor. He knew the poor. He was in their neighborhood looking them in the eye. And life looks different when we are personally involved, when we are invested in relationship. And here's the thing. It's not just Mark and it's not just Heather and it's not just Job and it's not just Karen who moved into the neighborhood to build relationships. If we go even one step further, we realize this. Somebody else has moved into our neighborhood so that there could be a relationship with us. And that was Jesus himself. Jesus moved into our neighborhood when he was born in a manger in Bethlehem. I love the way the message version of Scripture says it in John 1.14. The word became flesh and blood and moved into our neighborhood. It's Scripture's way of saying this is how Jesus was born, to be close to us in close proximity in our neighborhood. Why? to be in relationship with us. We are not charity cases for Jesus. We are not just individuals that he cared about. We are his children, and he comes and he looks us in the eye with eyes of compassion and longing and love and says, I want to know you. I want to be in relationship with you. I want to be in right relationship with you. And that's where justice begins, in right relationship. So how do we get to a place where we feel as strongly as a Heather or a Mark or a Karen or a Job, where we seek right relationship first with Jesus, just like Jesus did with us, where we never tire of fighting for justice in our world? We get there by being in relationship, being in relationship directly so that these folks, those folks become our own. 
Just yesterday, I had a chance to uh, officiate a wonderful wedding. Those of you that know Pastor Janet here at First Church, her daughter, Carrie, was married yesterday. And it was a great service for lots of different reasons. But one of the things that made it really interesting is in the course of the service, they did something that I don't recall seeing before, at least in a service I had been a part of. They did something called a family welcome. And what they did is both sets of parents, the Durwachters and the Colmers, came up. And what they did is they spoke in front of everybody who had gathered, and they looked, and in the Durwachter's case, they did not look at Carrie, who was their daughter. They looked at Ben, who was coming into their family. And when they looked at Ben, what they said to him was, Ben, this day you become our son. Ben, this day moving forward, we're not just here to support you and like you. We are here to love you, to walk with you, to be in relationship with you, to do anything we can. And if anybody comes against you, Ben, guess what? We will break their fangs. That's how much we love you and care about you. And I was struck hearing that because the very first time that they encountered this Ben guy, do you think that was their reaction? I mean, think about the very first time that Ben would have gotten a hold of the Durwachter family and specifically Carrie's dad, Ken, and called Ken up and said, Hi, sir, my name is Ben, and I would like to date your daughter. I have a feeling Ken at that point would not have jumped to his defense and broken the fangs of others against him. I think Ken might have looked at Ben and been like, Watch it, buddy, or I might break a few of your fangs myself. Because that was his daughter. So what happened? What, What went from Ben being just this acquaintance to we'll do anything we can for you. What happened was relationship. Ben has come into their lives and he has walked with their daughter and loved their daughter and done his best to protect their daughter and serve their daughter. And as the Durwalkers have watched that happen, the relationship has grown to the point that now they don't just like Ben. Ben is family. Ben is their son. That they would do anything Because of relationship. Throughout this series, we've looked at a number of areas related to the issue of justice. Things like poverty and homelessness and slavery and human trafficking and food insecurity and racism. What if all the people affected in those areas that we see, what if they weren't just charity cases, but folks that we entered into relationship with? What if if we moved into their neighborhood, whatever that might look like for us? What difference would that make in our world and in our lives and in their lives when it comes to issues of poverty and homelessness and food insecurity and racism and everything else? What if the kids who may every week, actually in the space that this particular group is gathered in, what if, what if they were not those kids who come to Open Gym? What if they were our kids? Man, they were my kids. There would be no mountain too high or ocean too deep to swim through that I wouldn't clear away and say, I'm going to come and I'm going to be with those kids because they're my kids. What if the policemen and women in our community, what if they weren't those policemen and women? What if they were our policemen and women? And we looked for any way that we could to bless them and pray for them and be there for them because they were ours. We were in relationship with them. What if when we were doing tutoring, it wasn't for those students? What if it was my son or daughter? or my brother or sister. And I'd do anything I needed to clear my schedule and come be with them because they were mine. What if with family promise it wasn't those families who need help, but those were my parents or my nieces and nephews? You better believe I'd do anything I could to come and be with those families because they were my, it's my family. 
In a couple weeks, we will be celebrating a community arts center service and hopefully receive these kind of invitations. What if with this service, it wasn't just another service that we'll just maybe get together and kind of out of our normal time and place? But what if we said, this is our city and we want to bless it in every way we can. And our city needs something healthy. Our city needs a sign of unity and what can happen and to offer a glimpse of the kingdom of God when God's people come together. And so we're going to come together that day and pray for our city and bless our city because this is our city instead of that city. So I invite you as a sign of right relationship and justice. Will you please come in two weeks and will you please bring whoever we can because this is our city that we want to be in right relationship with. See, our goal at First Church, it's not just to have programs that get run. Our hope is for opportunities for relationship that we might move into each other's neighborhoods. This is why we're investing a lot in things like the Axe Network and things like First Night and Celebrate Recovery and actually having a worship service out in the city because it's our neighborhood and we're seeking to move into it so we can build relationship just like Jesus does with us. So if we go all through all this, we could say lots of other things, but I just want to leave you with this. One question as we wrap all of this up together. Is this worth it? Is this whole idea of justice, is it even worth really trying to live into or not? Is it worth saying, we are going to own our city and our relationships so that we can be in right relationship with one another? Or not? And that's the question I want to ask us to reflect on as we watch a final video together. So let's go ahead and watch that at this time. We became Jesus' own because Jesus believed we were worth it. He moved into our neighborhood so he could be in direct relationship with us. May we do the same for others, for our world and in our city. In the name of Jesus Christ. For the sake of justice, it is worth it. So let justice roll. Amen.